Restart Radio, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because, unlike most, we do not focus on the new shiny, shiny things to buy. We focus, instead, on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair events here in London are just the beginning. My name is Isabel Lopez from the Restart Project, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by James Pixton, also from Restart. Hello. <laughs> and today we'll have Jessica Luth Richter on the phone with us. Jessica is a researcher into the circular economy at Lund University in Sweden. And she has been on our podcast before, talking about materials. In this episode, we'll talk about space. <laughs> we'll talk about the relationship between materials and space, including the iridium anomaly. Um, but first, we'll start with some news. Jessica, um, are you <laughs> here with us already? Yep, yep. I can hear you. <laughs> awesome. Hi, Jessica. Hi. How are you doing, Jessica? Good, thanks. <laughs> so before we get into the um, space um, theme of the day, uh, we wanted to discuss some tech news. Um, so we'll start with this. Uh, so Apple has started a give back scheme, which claims to... Turn the device you have into the device that you want. <laughs> it sounds like fancy Apple marketing to me. Yeah, so this uh, trading program, um, which also actually um, accepts uh, Android phones, so not just um, their products, um, gives you an estimated value for your device. And if you accept the code, then you send it and receive a gift card for that amount. Um, and then, so what happens with these devices from what I got from it is that they can either be refurbished and sold again or recycled in an environmentally responsible way. I quote. Yeah. <laughs> What's your take on this, James? It would be interesting to know a little bit more about the, uh, what kind of happens to those products afterwards, I think. Yeah. So if they're refurbished, if they're refitted, then... Are they sold on after that? Where do they go? And if they are kind of end of life, then what happens to them? It says an environmentally responsible way, but I'm not sure if there's much information available about what that actually involves and what happens to the phones. Are they broken down, recycled? Are components reused? Um, yep. Yeah, a little bit more information would be good. But uh, yeah, it's interesting to see Apple opening us up to different models of phone as well, not just Apple, but Android as well. Yep, definitely. Um, have you heard of this, Jessica? Yeah, I have heard of this. But it was in my understanding that it's really when you type it in, it's more of the latest models, which might make me think that it's more about refurbishment and selling it on. I know, um, I don't know if it's changed so far, but I know some friends have gone in with much older models of Apple as well. And it says that this is end of life. You can feel free to send it in for recycling. Huh. Um, and I think we do know a little bit about the recycling, at least of the Apple products, that they're going to give it to the the Daisy <laughs> robot there, um, which can disassemble uh, for some of the components um, and recycling. So we know maybe a little bit if it's an Apple product and it's uh, where it might be going if it's end of life, but I agree that we don't know about the differentiation and the choices that are being made about what's going to go on for refurbishment and what's going to go on for recycling and what happens to the non-Apple products that maybe um, Daisy can't deal with, though I've heard she can deal with more than Apple, so maybe. <laughs> yeah, Daisy. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we'll watch this initiative. It definitely looks interesting, but we look forward to data and transparency about what's happening with the phones collected. 
um, on another news. Well, actually, more on Apple. We're hearing about re very recent news about um, students accused of cheating Apple out of nearly a million dollars in fake iPhone scheme. James, you were telling me about this earlier. Yeah, this um, is something I read happening? <laughs> basically just before coming on, so I haven't had much of a chance to read through it in any real detail. But from what I can understand, it sounds like a couple of students in the USA um, have been accused of cheating Apple by uh, importing lots of kind of fake iPhones from China, then sending them to Apple to be repaired or refurbished, uh, and getting replacement phones, genuine phones, back in return. Uh, then shipping those back to China and then those being sold on um, for a handsome profit. Um, yeah, but like I say, I've, I've just read about this before coming on, so I'm not quite sure what to make of it yet. Um, is this news to you as well, Jessica? Yeah, I haven't actually read about this. I, I've read a lot about Apple in the news in the last week, but uh, not this one, no. So that's I know, we're, we're coming back to Apple every time, almost on this show, but we'll, <laughs> we'll watch that. Actually, our last item on, ad, on Apple uh, was this um, internal documents leak um, on right to repair initiatives. Um, have you heard about this one, Jessica? Yes, this I've heard about that they, uh, and I think um, iFixit and, and Motherboard actually um, uh, put that out there and then iFixit picked it up pretty fast and, and kind of claiming that at least in the in the U.S. it's showing that, that Apple is capable of meeting the demands of a lot of the bills that are proposed in the mm -hmm. proposal. Um, yeah, the so they're talking about providing spare parts, training, no restriction on types of repairs that are currently very um, divided or limited, right? What an independent repairer can and cannot do, um, even yeah. like authorized like providers. Um, but I think what it also indicates is that they might be partnering with larger repairers, um, too. So I think still some of the smaller repairers are, are looking at this and saying, okay, when am, I, when am I getting a call from Apple saying that I can repair and get access to spare parts? Mm -hmm. We're watching this too. Um, and then, well, many other things happening. So um, we've heard about a um, hacker attack. Um, well, a hacker hi hijacked um, ASUS. Uh, so basically, you might be installing a software update without knowing that hackers are getting into your devices. Yeah, it seems extraordinary. It, the, the story, from what I understand, is that these hackers were able to somehow uh, kind of take over the official update yep. uh, kind of process on certain ASUS devices um, and then install malware through that process which kind of seems extraordinary. I'm not quite sure how they were able to do that. But, yeah, it's um, quite impressive. It's quite there was a bit more on this um, that they got access to the, to the kind of codes, the keys that ah, you know, were supposed to be yeah. like the, the recipe for Coca-Cola. <laughs> you know, only a few people have them, and they always <laughs> know where they are and who's been told about them. Well, somehow the hackers got a hold of this, and then that enabled them to actually send out these um, yeah, updates as if, they are from the company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very impressive and very worrying. Pretty terrifying. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't know. In what balance? Um, yeah. Um, and last news, I thought it was quite funny, but also terrifying. So we heard about these smartphone zombies in South Korea. Aha. I think I've seen a few of those myself. That's, yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, it's not an, an unfamiliar image here either. Um, how people, well, I mean, myself, right? We're checking our phone all the time, um, being awful pedestrians, and then 
yeah, this is a traffic crisis potentially and like death. <laughs> People potentially um, walking into the road instead of looking at their, well, looking at their phone and not checking oncoming traffic. Paying yeah. attention, yeah. yeah. Um, so South Korea um, is thinking about these uh, warnings on your smartphone to let you know that you're getting close to a crossing um, and potentially save your life. Is this good or terrifying? <laughs> I don't know. I can't, I can't really decide whether I think this is <laughs> progress like, warning, or... Warning, please become human again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so many things happening. But um, anyways, how about we get into the space theme of the day? <laughs> So um, we wanted to talk about um, Iridium today. Um, I actually didn't know much about Iridium before um, thinking about this show, um, which I found is a very rare element in Earth, in the Earth's crust, <laughs> though. And this yep. is important um, because it leads us to talk about this Iridium anomaly. But before that, um, had any, ha have you, James, heard about Iridium before? Is it like familiar to you? If I'm being completely honest, <laughs> um, Iridium is something I only had encountered before in, in video games as a kind of resource that you have to, to find on different planets when you know, huh. scouring the universe. And I, I kind of assumed they had made it up. Um, and Whoa. I thought, oh, that would be a great name for an element. And then I found out that, in fact, it is an actual element. And I was very impressed. That's interesting um, and related to what we're talking about. Yeah, Iridium. absolutely. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm a bit of a, an Iridium newbie. So I'm, I'm keen to learn a little bit more cool um, about its properties and, and 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 where it comes from that's what we're here for um yeah what about you jessica what do you know about iridium and actually uh, if you want uh, to maybe introduce yourself a little bit more a little bit more in terms of your research and your kind of uh relationships to material as a field of yeah. study so uh, i've heard of iridium before but <laughs> studied geology um an undergraduate and uh yeah there you learn you learn about all the elements and and the different materials and especially about the rare ones because those are sometimes the most interesting because they're unique in many ways and i still work with materials a little bit but i've moved more into in my phd into looking at products and how they use materials and how we can use the materials and products more sustainably So that brings me more to circular economy research and looking at how we reuse and recycle to close and slow material loops. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's that's basically what my research is in. But still, I use the knowledge that I gained in geology, actually, so it's fun. Cool. Um, so yeah, I do know a bit about everything. <laughs> that's reassuring at this point. Yeah, we'll come back to, to materials and circular economy in a bit. But, um, but yeah... Um, So so we were very, very shocked by this iridium anomaly, which I find very interesting of how uh, there's almost no iridium in the Earth's crust, but there is in a more internal layer, right, where mm -hmm. iridium is finding a higher concentration. So why is that? Why can this be? <laughs> That's yeah, the okay. So on the, on the one, we should also start with why is there not much iridium in the Earth's crust? And we, we mm -hmm. do say in the Earth's crust, not on Earth, because iridium is, is really dense, like other platinum groups metals and it tends to bond with iron so when the earth was forming most of the iridium ended up in the earth's core not on the surface mm. um, so that's why it's it's unusual to see a layer of iridium with with a high concentration um, and it is a really thin layer and it's and it can be found all around the world so that's also interesting about mm -hmm. this anomaly um, so this layer has concentrations about a hundred times more than average found in the earth's crust And that got the attention of geologists looking at this layer that they were coming across over and over, and it also where it occurs. So it occurs at um, 
like a boundary in, in geologic time. It's 66 million years ago, and it's the boundary between the Cretaceous and the Paleogene. And this led scientists to looking, okay, what else is occurring here? They already knew something major mm-hmm. occurred at this boundary <laughs> and why it's a boundary, and that was and the extinction of the dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> scientists started thinking, okay, does this layer and the extinction of the dinosaurs, are they connected in some way? And, and lo- starting to look at this layer a bit more. And it has this iridium and shocked quartz in it. And they started thinking about, okay, iridium, yes, it's quite rare. Where else could this iridium have come from? It's very rare to find it in the Earth's crust. So what, what maybe brought this? And that started leading to a hypothesis that an asteroid brought this iridium to Earth and leading to this hypothesis that actually the asteroid probably also triggered the extinction of the dinosaurs. Um, And they kind of found this layer first and this evidence of iridium first and came up with this hypothesis. It was later that they actually found evidence of the impact crater that really gave a lot more weight to this hypothesis. Okay, not only do we have this layer and and this idea that an asteroid came, but we also have a crater (laughs) of um, giving evidence of the asteroid. Um, so that, that it's really connected to this uh, hypothesis about the extinction of the dinosaurs that now has become um, probably the most accepted hypothesis of what happened to the dinosaurs. I mean, other than the ones that evolved into birds. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fascinating. <laughs> so did the uh, discovery of this iridium anomaly, w- did that kind of generate the first hypotheses about a- an asteroid hitting hitting Earth and kind of wiping out the dinosaurs? Was that where that came from, or was that floating I think it gave beforehand? more evidence to this. I think ah, there, were okay. several, there were several competing, and still there's, there's still some debate about this, because you can also have um, another source of it, as we know, is the Earth's core. So you could have a volcano that could be connected to deep magma that then could also result in some sort of um, iridium. But really, the, the concentrations and the crater put together, it was kind of all these clues together that gives the most evidence for this hypothesis. Um, but yeah, the apo- hypothesis existed before, but there wasn't as much evidence for is this really what happened. You're listening to Rista Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM. And we're talking with Jessica Luth-Richter about materials and space. So, Jessica, we've been talking about iridium and the iridium anomaly and its connection to meteorites and... And the dinosaurs. Dinosaurs, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but what else do we know about iridium, this rare element in the Earth's crust? Yeah, well, I, I mean, as we've been saying over and over, we know that it's, it's rare, one of the rarest, I mean, top 10 rarest that it can be found in the Earth's crust. Um, and, I mean, when you talk about concentrations of it in the Earth's crust, we're talking about, like, three parts per billion, um, which is wow. the highest concentration that I've seen evidence. There's different estimates um, for it as well, even lower than that. So the EU fact sheet rest, um, estimates only 0.02 parts per billion in the upper crust. So very, very small amounts. By comparison, like iron or aluminium, they're 50 to 80,000 parts per million wow. in the Earth's crust. So extremely rare. And, that, and um, how does that... Other things... What? Yep. Sorry, I was just going to ask, how does that compare to kind of the universe as a whole? Uh, I mean, is iridium rare on just on Earth and more plentiful elsewhere, or is it rare kind of across the board And when you look at other planets or asteroids or, or kind of these interplanetary bodies? Yeah, good question. So it depends on on how the bodies were formed. So if, like Earth, there was this 
period of, of stratification and, and layers formed, then it could happen the same thing that happens on Earth where dense materials like platinum group metals and iridium are drawn into the core of that body. But then there's, there's other bodies in space that don't go through that process, like asteroids. <laughs> and so uh -huh. there, you will find it in higher concentrations nearer the surface. It's, it's um, not as stratified as it is here on Earth. So there, you will find it in 100 times higher concentrations, um, much, much higher. Cool. Got it. Interesting. Um, so what I read is that we... Despite how rare this element is, we do use it for certain things. So, for instance, alloys, um, by mixing it with other metals like platinum, for instance. Um, but interestingly, these alloys can also be used for, for electronics, so electrical contacts or electrodes or some wires. So this was interesting to me that we still find uses for it, despite how, how rare it is. Um, yep, it's very special. So, I mean, it's also, it's resistant to wear, tarnish, chemicals and high temperatures and it has stable electrical properties. It can also be used as a catalyst, um, meaning it like, can start reactions or increase the rate of chemical reactions. Um, so really useful in industrial and tech applications. I can imagine. What, what kind of processes are we talking about? Do you have any examples? Um, uh, you can have like a catalytic converter as well. I mean, in that one, you would probably use platinum, which is a little less rare than, than iridium, but you can use different platinum group metals for these different reactions. Um, a lot of our basic industrial um, catalysts, we use these kind of platinum group metals in some way or another if we're really in a high, um, sophisticated process. Right. We so can also use it to strengthen materials as well. Um, and then if you're, if you're in environments with high temperatures, you also might add a platinum group metal like iridium as well. And that's why you see it in like electrical contacts and these sorts of Right, so how do we uh, make sense of iridium in terms of demand and supply? And could this yeah. element be critical? This is what we talked about with you in our last um, Restart Radio with you. <laughs> yeah, critical yeah. materials. So critical materials Critical materials are in that, and we talked about in that show, how you assess critical materials. Mm -hmm. Is there a risk of supply disruption? Um, and when it's actually rare, that's almost always, yes, there can be a supply disruption. Mm -hmm. um, there can be scarcity. And how important is it to the EU economy if it's like the EU critical materials list or whatever list it's being made by? It could be made by the U.S. department. It could be made by a company. It's what is important to their either economy or their supply chain um, that makes it critical. So some of the, the uses that I just mentioned for this make it really important um, for those different applications. So yes, it's very important to the EU economy, and it's on the list because it's also at risk for supply because it is really 85% of iridium is mined and coming from mines in South Africa. So there's kind of only one major source for it, mm -hmm. which always also makes the supply risk. And then we know that there's very little of it to be mined in the first place. It is mined with other platinum group metals. They're found together, and so you, you've got to be mining them all together, and then you get a little bit of iridium. And we're really talking tiny, tiny amounts compared to other materials out there. So I think in, in 2016, there were seven tons mined, which wow. you know, <laughs> is really not much when you're talking about mining and, and materials. Could you compare it with another one as an example to get a... <laughs> I mean, in other ones, we're talking about <laughs> thousands and millions of tons. 
that's, another material. That's a, that's so seven a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. A single digit is, is a very, very tiny amount. And we are using very, very tiny amounts in these applications. Hmm. Is, is there a reason? Um, that, I think, yeah, if we could find more, we would use more. Yeah, I bet. Um, is, is there a reason that it tends to come from mines in South Africa, given that it's kind of a, from what you said, a global Distributed, layer? Yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, in theory, yeah. could you potentially get it from other places too? Yeah. So, I mean, one hand you could say, oh, you just talked about this worldwide layer of it. Um, but when I'm talking about a layer, I'm talking about a super thin <laughs> layer uh-huh. of it. Um, so you, and it's also, you know, very, very tiny and dispersed throughout the world, this small clay layer um, at that boundary. Um, so that's not a great source of it. It's it's other sources where it's like an igneous source from, from magma deep underground, from that core kind of uh, source of it that has come up and made a rock that's concentrated it a bit more. So there's these kind of deposits in South Africa. There are some other deposits in Zimbabwe, a smaller one in the U.S., some in Canada, some in Russia. Um, and these have different kind of compositions of platinum group metals. So you might find um, more platinum in them, which is usually the one they're going after um, that has the most, and then it, they'll get iridium with it, let's mm. say. Um, so we're not mining iridium just for iridium. We're mining it with something else, which means it's always going to be dependent on how that all these platinum group metals together are needed and found and how much can be found. But it is very expensive also then, because you have got to find this concentration. It is a very intense mining process as well. So, yeah, it makes uh, high prices for the platinum group metals as well. Yeah, I can imagine. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so coming back to, so kind of connecting the, the idea of materials with space, again, our theme today, um, we're wondering what materials, so we've heard about space mining. It'd be great if you can tell us a bit more about this. Um, can we get materials from space? Um, yeah, so we mentioned about how the concentrations of iridium are much higher in the in the asteroids. So mm-hmm. instead of talking about three billion or parts per billion, we can be talking about three parts per million. <laughs> yeah. There. So yeah, order um, difference there. But uh, platinum group metals are definitely of interest from space and and something that is possible to get from asteroids, from at least the research that's been done on some of the metal-rich asteroids. We've even had some research looking at the moon. And I mean, all the materials that are found on Earth, you can also find on the moon. And it's just a matter of what concentrations there. So there's some evidence that maybe rare Earth elements might be interesting to mine on the moon. yeah, but then there's also questions like the further out we go, if we're mining asteroids, you have to set up then some kind of infrastructure to get to that asteroid and to get back. So you're also then talking about what materials are you going to need just for space exploration itself to get from one place to another. And there you're going back to more basics. You're going to need fuels. You're going to need water. You're going to need oxygen, depending on what if you're bringing people or robots along. Right, but you're going to need some kind of um, basically the equivalent of gas station network up there, fueling stations in space as well. So you're also going to be looking at resources from space for space exploration. Right. Gosh. I think I, yeah. uh, I read an article somewhere saying that... Uh, um, Someone, someone's bet a lot of money on the fact that the first trillionaire will be a, a space miner 
someone involved in space mining trying to set up a big company to extract these kinds of resources from, as you say, the moon or asteroids. But it, it, yep. it sounds like they've got a lot to think about before they get to that point, really, all this yeah. infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, we have SpaceX wanting to have people going to Mars and going to, you know, live in Earth. So, like, why not yeah. also bring in some iridium on your way back? No? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Goldman Sachs released a report a couple of years ago for investors, you know, talking about how, yeah, space may be the next frontier and, and also the same things you're saying. Maybe the, the source of the next trillionaire, um, even Barack Obama signed a bill in 2015 facilitating private development of uh, space resources. So, you know, some of the components are already there. Some things have been thought through, but I would agree with you, there's still a lot to think about before this becomes a reality, you know, and, and I think SpaceX, it is um, starting to mainstream this, and it is bringing the cost of rockets down um, and and thinking about how to, to reuse those resources. So they're reusing the rockets, and it's really bringing the, the logistics and the costs down, which is then, you know, leading to Goldman Sachs making these kind of uh, – business cases for it saying, okay, well, rockets are getting cheaper, um, so it might get cheaper to mine out in space now. Yeah, I was hearing about also the um, Sabre um, rocket, S-A-B-R-E, um, supposed to the, yeah, we're only like hearing about SpaceX, but there's like many other projects. I think this is a UK-based one. So kind of like, are we getting closer to making space exploration or just um, even, you know, people, um, flights to space feasible mm. cheaper and a reality um but yeah more on spacex um so basically we're getting uh potentially yeah closer to to making space exploration something more similar to like flights or how we think about like traveling already um do you, James, see yourself going to space in your lifetime? Do I see myself going to space? <laughs> um, I mean, I guess I don't know enough about the the cutting edge of space exploration technology, but uh, it feels it still feels like a long a long way away. I think. Um, yeah. Given that you know no one's been to the moon for however many decades at this point, um, but I mean, who knows? I yeah, it would be interesting to see what that kind of next stage is and whether these proposed missions to Mars, I think there are what, hmm. a couple of them that we've mentioned, yeah. uh, whether they happen or not. Um, those are certainly planned within my lifetime, hopefully. So who <laughs> knows? We'll see. What are your thoughts, Jessica? Uh, you know, as a, as a nerd who grew up watching Star Trek, I love <laughs> the idea. But um, now working as an environmental researcher, I'm trying to avoid flying. <laughs> so I'm like, mm. uh, <laughs> and then justify uh, flying into space for, for leisure. But... I'm thinking, you know, there's, it depends on the aim of it. If it's space exploration and it's about learning, then I see the value of it. If it's space tourism, then I might have some, some um, uh, criticisms of it. But I think space and the exploration of space has been instrumental in raising awareness about how special Earth is. Um, and seeing the first picture of space kind of said to spark the, the environmental movement. So I think we learn a lot through the process and exploration of space about how to live better on Earth. But I think uh, before this aim of, of going and settling other planets or other places in space, we still have to address some of the problems threatening Earth <laughs> and looking at how we make sustainable systems and how we're thinking about materials here. And when we're talking about mining 
on other uh, on asteroids or even the moon, we need to also be thinking about what are we going to do with those materials when we bring them back? Are they just going to end up as waste eventually on Earth because we haven't solved the how to make closed systems of materials here on Earth first? Definitely. Uh, so I, I don't think, think going out and getting new materials just to become waste is the answer. <laughs> for sure. I think this is great food for thought. Um, we're wrapping up now. Thank you, Jessica, so much for being with us today. Thanks, Jessica. No worries. Yeah, great My to pleasure. talk to you. And... Well, uh, and following our space theme this month, I'll say that we'll, we'll be publishing a podcast also on our website at the end of the month um, on the theme. So watch out. If you would like help fixing anything with a plug or a battery, including headphones, radios and all the equipment, do check our website for upcoming events and find out more about us. Uh, it's http <laughs> website.restartproject.org or find us on social media, um, on Twitter or Facebook. And thanks to Optonoise and Cassini Sound for our music which was made with lasers, spinning plastic discs and discard electronics. We're here live every second Tuesday of the month at 5 p.m. Um, happy Easter and until next month.